Hi, I'm Tammy Rodman. I'm Reynolds Chapman. And I'm Keith Daniel. Welcome to Who Is My Neighbor, a podcast about what it looks like to love your neighbor. Every city has a story, and our wonderful city of Durham, North Carolina has woven our stories together. This podcast is an invitation to join us as we journey through Durham's history of pain and hope and discover what God is speaking to us in this moment. Come with us as we listen to the voices of the Samaritans. In this first season, we are asking a question to respond to our present moment. Who is my neighbor amid a pandemic and a history of racial injustice? In today's episode, we will speak with Jory Bryant and Vera Shashelsky about history, symbols, storytelling, and public art, and what they have to do with racial justice. I would like to introduce uh, Vera. She is the site manager for Stagville State Historics uh, Site. She also is our uh, primary and wonderful docent who leads us on the pilgrimage of pain and hope. Um, Vera just brings us the stories that probably would not be heard at uh, some plantations, but she does an excellent job of making sure that we not only hear the prominent story of the slave holder, but the story of the enslaved as well. So we, we're excited about hearing from her this morning. Also, we have Jory Bryan, our church mobilization officer for Durham Cares. And Jory is a descendant from Stagville and a community organizer who addresses issues of historical oppression. Jory and Vera, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. We wanna start today by hearing your stories. Tell us how you came to care about history and storytelling and how it plays a role in your life today. Vera, would you like to start us out? Sure. Um, So uh, I came into doing public history work or or history and storytelling work, as you might put it, um, really um, from the time I was a very young person. Uh, I grew up here in Durham um, and uh, my father is a historian who focuses on the history of uh, race in North Carolina across many different time periods. And so I grew up um, tagging along with him on oral history trips and um, visiting activists and um, leaders in the civil rights movement and other rights movements in North Carolina and learning from and recording their stories and, you know, tramping through the backwoods and rural counties looking for family cemeteries or um, old houses or, um, historic sites that had been forgotten um, so that he could photograph them and and visit them and write about them. Um, And so I kind of grew up um, valuing that and valuing coming into those spaces and learning from that history Um, and also grew up in a family um, that has deep roots in North Carolina. My uh, father's side of the family traces back um, into the 1600s in Carteret County, including 
a history of um, enslaving people on um, farmland in, in Carteret County. Um, and so um, I grew up not only hearing those stories from elders in my family or in my community, but also um, from a very young age, um, learning to wrestle and grapple with those stories and with that history um, and with a history of oppression and exploitation and, and resistance and, um, and grappling with the identity that went along with that and was kind of uh, throughout my young life in my community taught that part of the work that we had to do to be alive and be human in the world was to hold on to these histories and to grapple with uh, what they meant about us and, and our identities. Um, and uh, in, I worked in museums and historic sites as a young person, um, first on the coast of North Carolina, around the North Carolina Maritime Museum and the Corsound Waterfowl Museum, other community museums that do maritime history. Um, and um, what I quickly found working in maritime museums, especially when I began to work at sort of national scale museums in other parts of the country, um, was that there was sort of this deep vacancy in the history that they were teaching because so often that maritime story of America excluded a history of race-based slavery and sort of a broader history of race and identity in maritime spaces. And I grew up um, knowing uh, the legacy of black watermen and the community my family is from and knowing um, that this was an integral part of the American story that wasn't being told in those museums and historic sites. Um, so I moved back home to Durham um, and I knew that if I was going to come back into public history, I wanted to find a place where I could learn um, myself and hopefully push others to research and teach and interpret those stories in these spaces and create public places for people to uh, engage these stories and, and have conversation around them. Um, and I was fortunate enough in a roundabout way um, to encounter um, Stagville right here uh, in Durham County. Um, and I've been with Stagville for uh, about five years now in a number of different positions. I've been the site manager here for uh, about a year and a half or so at this point. Um, and um, feel very fortunate that Stagville is a space to uh, grapple with that history and to um, push, this is a site that can be pushed to, to do more of that work. Thank you, thank you. Jory. Yes, um, my story is much different. I um, grew up in a family where history was something that we kind of talked about um, around the dinner table in many ways. Um, the historian of my family, my, my more close immediate family was my aunt who passed away um, uh, two years ago this year. Um, and she, she was a North Carolina Central alum, um, educated in, in, in education, obviously, um, was her primary goal, but she constantly was talking to us about our history. Yeah. Um, and in many ways, when she passed, it kind of just came to me. Um, and to go back further from from talking those dinner table discussions, I was lucky. I went to East End School, um, and Dr. Charles Johnson had a program that he started there in 1990 called Embodied Black. 
And um, by the time I got there in 93, um, that, that program, it pretty much integrated itself into how people taught in that school. And so I had a, a, a woman by the name of Bahija Rashid was my fourth grade teacher. And she taught us about the black history of Durham while teaching us the curriculum. Um, and so um, and my, by the time my fifth grade year comes around, we actually go to Stadville Plantation on a field trip. And they uh, take us to the Holman house. And I'm, I'm only 10, but they're like, this is the Holman house. And I had a teacher who was there. Her last name was Holman, and she spelled it differently. And we both kind of were like, oh, these are people. Um, now, I never went home and told my mom that, like, hey, there's this place that's named after my grandparents, right? Um, I just kind of held it there. It was in 2017 when I was on the pilgrimage of Pain and Hope with Durham Cares, that um, with my mom there with me, that I actually was telling my mom, like, hey, one of these houses is the Holman house. And she was like, well, why you ain't tell me this before? And I'm like, well, I didn't, nobody in my family ever ever spoke of. Um, and so in that, in that, I was able to, Vera was giving us a tour and I spoke to Vera and I was like, can you find out for us if we are actually descendants of these people? Um, and Vera did and verified it like while we were on the tour. So we were, I think it was the second day of the tour of, of the Pilgrimage of Pain and Hope when we actually verified that we are related to the, to, to the people who were enslaved um, in Sladville. And um, ever since then, I have been even more engaged in history um last year i thought the year before last uh, i think it, it might have been it, it was last year where we worked with the bradtown um project for durham cares and being able to take uh oral histories with community members in in the bradtown community kind of it was my introduction to like how to take oral history and where do those stories go Right. It's not just taking the oral history, but it's like archiving it, um, creating in much what in much ways creating a canon because oral histories and public history is a huge part of how we actually change the narrative. Um, and so since then, I've actually been working with taking oral histories from farmers. Um, because many farmers that I meet in the work that we do, that I do around food justice, actually have much closer ties to enslavement um, due to most of their land actually being formerly plantation land. Um, I haven't found too many places where a black person is farming that is not tied to a plantation land, unless they more recently acquired that land. But if it's been in their family for years, um, that land was either gifted by the government or was transferred to them through sharecropping and purchased through sharecropping. Um, and so like it's been a blessing to be able to see history as a means of um, mobilizing people to do work around social justice because once people start revisiting those stories, it kind of prompts them to look at their current circumstances, judge it versus 
the previous um and also oftentimes that leads them to say well there's an issue here we need to address thank you thank you both for giving us a window uh into your stories i i find myself you know always wanting to know more um and hear more i was recently uh when invited me on a podcast that was called exploring more and there's so much more in your story that um, I hope we'll have time in the future to continue to um, engage you. We want to now get your perspective, and I feel like it is a hard transition, but an important one given the, as you said, the importance of the public narrative um, and that as they have shaped our lives. And so I'd like for either or both of you to um, uh, help us uh, consider the question or tell us about um, public symbols and historic sites in Durham and how they reflect the history of race and our values. I think certainly when we think about historic sites and, and places that are accessible for people to come and have an interpreted narrative about history um, in Durham or in Durham County, um, it's very, very clear that the historic sites that we have do not represent the full history of people on this land um, or even the history of the city of Durham more recently, right? Um, and there's a long and to some degree complicated legacy of how that is, of why that is. Um, but in some ways it's not very complicated, which is that these sites, um, historic sites and um, historical narratives in general are, have been used for generations um, by people in power to create narratives that are useful for reinforcing their power, right? Um, so when we look, for example, at um, the three historic sites in Durham that are part of our state network of historic sites, um, we have Stagville, a historic plantation site, um, which today does work that focuses on enslaved people and dialogues throughout the history of race in this area. But that was very much not the mission, very much not the founding vision of what Stagville was going to be, right? Um, it was preserved originally for its architectural grandeur and, um, and to preserve in part, obviously, the, the history of um, the, the Cameron and the Benahan families, the white families who um, controlled slavery here and, and who profited from enslaving people on this land. Um, and we have Duke Homestead, which focuses on the story of the Duke family, another elite wealthy white family um, that were um, part of that sort of ruling and owning class within the history of Durham. And we have um, Bennett Place, a historic farm site, but a site that's tied to uh, a very white narrative of the Civil War for the most part, um, a, a site of uh, a massive Confederate surrender. Um, and um, that means that none of our state historic sites in this area represent uh, indigenous people's history on this land, represent um, the history of um, the black communities throughout the history of um, Durham County, whether um, before after the founding of the city of Durham. Um, and obviously Stagville is striving to do that work now, um, but that is a 
recent recommitment, right? That is a growth in the mission of our site rather than part of the, the, the sort of original intention of the people who created this place. Um, and so, um, and unfortunately what I think is true and what I see when we deal with visitors or people who are new to this area or people who, for example, come to Stagville and encounter these narratives for the first time and are perhaps very genuinely curious and hungry to explore more of these stories. Um, what we, I think, often see within the community of Durham is that um, there's sort of a uh, broad acknowledgement or sort of hat tip to the history of, for example, things like Black Wall Street or the civil rights movement in the city of Durham. Um, but there are very few places and public spaces that people can easily access um, and easily go to, to have an interpreted experience, to have a dialogue, to have, uh, to meet historians who have documented this story or um, encounter oral history or things like that, right? Um, most of that history is in archives, which as Jory said, are often sort of notoriously uh, have high barriers to entry or are hard to access um, or are, you know, maybe a historic sign by the side of the road somewhere, um, but not really a public space that people can, um, and people and there are obviously there's lots of community work headed in that direction there are small pockets of spaces like that um, but um, in many cases um, in Durham we're really lacking historic sites that really fully can represent and uphold that story um, and uh, it means that when someone is first encountering Durham's history through museums or historic sites um, they are not hearing all the voices that they should hear, right? Um, and even people who are very interested uh, or very compelled to seek out these narratives um, may have a hard time always being able to access that history um, or being able to um, encounter spaces and places where they can really feel that history. Um, I hope that's somewhat of a start of an answer. Yeah, thank you, Vera. That is, um, I, I just continue to be, when we do this show, uh, kind of brought up short when it comes to uh, the, the importance of this commitment to the work that you're doing and seeking to press into these questions and get, get our communities and neighbors to also really lean into these, these very real questions and challenging questions about how you know space is constructed and how our lives are ordered around you know certain narratives and they're um yeah thank you for I, I kind of hesitated when I looked at the question again I was like yeah this is this is a big sharp turn from your personal story to now reflecting on the wider and broader story Jory can you lean into that for us too yeah yeah um as a black person um, that has such a strong tie to the land here, not as strong as any indigenous person who has been experiencing this place, man, for hundreds of years now. Um, but it's still a more somewhat recent um, 
yeah, somewhat recent story. I when I think of to speak kind of what what uh, Vera talked about, when I think of monuments that have been erected, right? And when you look at the history of Confederate monuments in America, not just in the South, but just in North Carolina alone, right? Because I always like to point people to how North Carolina in many ways is leading our country in some of these things historically. Um, we have monuments being erected as early as 1863 and as late as 1998 um, here in North Carolina alone. And it's a it's a wide range. Some of them are actually like cemeteries erected and, and we can we could tease out like how people want to remember our history. Um, because like you said, it's such a big topic. But monuments that are not even associated with a cemetery. I mean, there's hundreds of them here in, in North Carolina. And to think about what those things represent for people who were indigenous here and for people who are um, who were in, experienced enslavement in their history, I think it speaks to how narratives are shaped for us publicly. Um, and what it tells us about our own personhood. Um, I think that it, it, it is kind of like a stark reminder to stay away when you see those monuments. When you see those, it's a, it's a reminder that you're not wanted you here. Um, remember your trauma in many ways. It's a monument to your trauma. Um, there's there's many ways that symbols speak to us on how we see ourselves and even how we psychologically move throughout society. Um, and I think that the way that this has been handled throughout the course of the last 150 years, um, give or take a decade or two, yeah, like it, it's a very, to me, there's a very clear understanding of why some of the issues that people face around many other systemic and social issues, um, it kind of just, it, it's in your face. It's like, well, of course, we would have to say Black Lives Matter when you have a time capsule that it is a relic by no means, by any means, but we're talking about lifting up individuals in this time capsule, for instance, that was just removed, that clearly did not want me to be considered human. Um, now, I do believe we should not try to erase that past. I want to be clear on that. That is a part of our history. That is very much so tells us who we are. And to try to act like that didn't exist is also injustice. I don't think it's going to a, a victim of trauma and telling them that that trauma didn't happen it helps that person move forward. And I think that oftentimes the way that we've approached this, um, and I'm speaking for myself right now, I want to be clear on that. I'm not representing any organization. I'm speaking for me. I think that this is an erasure of our trauma and it does not help us with getting, getting through the very difficult 
things that have happened to us in the country when we want to just wipe yeah. out and act like it didn't happen. Um, I do think that we have to delineate like from what Vera talked about, people who want who want to venerate these. Um, I wouldn't even call them, I don't even believe that mm-hmm. these individuals are venerating the people. I think they're venerating the idea of the individuals mm-hmm. and what those people represented. Um, and so, yeah, I think that those things have to be held, um, both intention that this is our history. This is what happened. This is what happened to us. And this is what some of us did, right? This is what our ancestors did. We, we have people who their ancestors did, they have to, have to sit with that and people who it happened to have to sit with it. But we cannot act as if it did not happen. It does not help us at all. Um, and I think that there is a lot of discourse around that as well. But for me, for those who know me and those who don't, you get you know, meeting for the first time. Um, I truly believe that um, the answer to our problems is often sitting with the problem and not necessarily ignoring it. And sometimes people consider me to be a pessimist for that. I'm not trying to get into my personality. I'm just trying to think like how I'm talking yeah. about it. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I really appreciate your honest, your honest reflection. I think being vulnerable as an African-American man is, is you know, part of our, our challenge because we have to be so, you know, made of steel when it comes to addressing these very important heart issues while also recognizing we can't, you know, we live in that tension of both representing our community because so much of what we say and do is assumed to represent the entirety of our community. Um, And so, uh, you know, I appreciate you, you know, thinking critically and as it relates to the substantiation of your story and your your way of of communicating it, uh, and I, I trust our hearers will will take the both the what I call the the both and of that. It's it I think it's true, um, uh, very much true as you navigate these these very difficult personal waters that you've had to experience in your life, while also you know helping us meaning everyone, which I think Tammy will move to this, this next question about looking, you know, more broadly to other, other neighbors or who we call our neighbors in this work to truth, to tell truth. Um, so again, thank, thank you both for taking on such a, such a big and important question in a very intentional, in an intentional way, thoughtful way. Yeah. I think what's so powerful about what you shared, Jory, is you, you're showing that these public symbols have such a crucial impact on you and your story. And um, so thank you so much for just sharing how um, there is an impact to these to these public symbols and uh, it can affect our, our minds and our lives and our emotions. And um you know, now we see all around us this increased awareness about public symbols and how we tell American history. Um, and there are a lot of perspectives about how to respond to it. Um, tear them down, put them in a museum, leave them up. Uh, and 
I would love to press into that a little bit deeper too, uh, both Vera and Jory, as we see an increased awareness about racial injustice overall and an increased recognition that, oh, wow. I mean, I think in many ways, some people are noticing monuments that they had never really noticed before, right? Um, And so now they're saying, oh, wow, there's all these monuments that are reinforcing this racial injustice. What do we do now in 2020? How do we, what are some things that we should consider as we tell our history in a way that seeks justice? I think that, like I, like I said before, um, there's definitely the reality of like, this is our history. You can't escape that. Like I, I have this thing where it's like, history is history. And there's really no argument with it. Um, even if we try to go back and retell the story, you, you, even that is going to be coming from the framework of what actually happened. It's really difficult to completely ignore um, what has happened and you're going to respond to it or come from it. So in, in many ways, it's like a psychological acknowledgement of what happened um, to even try to retell a story. I think that Oftentimes what happens and why people avoid history from my perspective, um, and I'm speaking from a justice perspective, is that because we like we talked about it, the framework of the history that we are currently dealing with has been such to uplift white supremacy um, that we oftentimes want to just completely avoid that story and just stay away from it. Um, but that doesn't change. Like, no matter how much there's no monument to all the enslaved people in Durham right now, that I still I'm still here. Like I still exist. Right. So in many ways, you can't change that. Like you can't, you know, and even if I was deceased to exist, my nephew still exists. Like, we're still here. Um, and I think that in many ways, our existing is an act of resistance, right? The fact that I'm here is resistant to the fact that, like, you wanted to wipe our story out. Um, you actually didn't want to tell our story. Um, like, when you think about um, a space at Statville, the Great Barn, um, and Vera could go into this more in depth where Paul Cameron makes this speech around how you know, there's no, there's nothing that African people have created as a monument or it could be left as a legacy, right? But they actually build this barn in a way that the structure still stands when Paul Cameron is no longer here, right? That that we might, we most, most of us will have to do a deep dive to figure out where these people actually went, but, but this building still stands as a monument to something that they created. And I think that when we talk about justice, um, there's many different justices, right? And I think historical justice, from my standpoint, is actually doing the deeper dive on, well, what are the actual monuments to the people of the story that people try to wipe out, right? So what is the Okanichi Saponi story? 
right? What is uh, the many indigenous people across the state of North Carolina and across the, 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 the United States of America, right? Nationally, like their stories are still there, even though they've been attempted to wipe them out. And I think that their story, I always tell people like those are first stories. Um, I acknowledge that. And those are first stories. Those stories were going on long before anybody ever got here. And those, yes, we, we know that public symbols are not reflective of that, but these individuals still exist and are reminding us that they are still here. And oftentimes we have to seek that out. And the same thing goes for enslaved people thereafter. And yeah, I think that that's kind of a part of the narrative. And there's many, there's many, the academia has many different variations of what you might feel are a public symbol that might be written or it might be, but you have to kind of stick that out and tease out that in, in many ways. And I think that's a part of the historical justice that is happening. Um, in many in many different locations in many different areas, I think that as a public, and I'm speaking from someone who's not a historian, I want to make sure that I name that. Like, I don't want to claim somebody else's what people have dedicated lives to, but as a part of the public domain, myself, like somebody that's in the public, um, I believe that there has to be a connection between the two that we no longer think of history as a, a, as completely solely white supremacist ideals, right? And white supremacy narratives and white supremacy monuments. But we have to say like, okay, we know what we see, but we know that there's something else there that we have to go toward. And we have to be able to tease out, say like, for instance, the Durham Freeway is called the I.L. Buck Dean Freeway. The I.L. Buck Dean was the person who actually came up with the idea to create a road between Austin Avenue and West Chapel Hill Street, right? So this is the person who constructed the actual displacement of the Haytown community, the Brookstown community, but the highway is named that, right? Um, do we continue to name that be the name of the highway, right? When that's the legacy, should, should it be changed or should it stay there and we tell the truth about it, right? That's just a question that we have to press into, but it is public, right? We drive on that road, you know, and the separation of what, what we think and what we do, I think that's where the tension stands is like, we can not, we can try not to think about that, but we take that highway every day. We drive up and down that road every day, right? Um, but this, but the highway itself is a monument to displacement, whether you like it or not. You can't change it. Um, and so I'll stop right mm, there. Thank you, Jory. Vera. Um, there's so many different directions I think that we could jump off into talking about this. I think one thing that I want to illustrate is that there is this sort of fundamental difference between um, 
as Jory just said, you know, a name on a highway or um, a monument and um, a historic site like Stagville. And I really see that difference as kind of a core piece of our work. Um, Khadija, my colleague here, and I just had a conversation about this last week. And we were talking about the fact that really in some way, right, like Stagville is sort of a, a, a living, breathing entity, right? And that's the difference is that Stagville is not just a physical object. It's a community of people who work here. It's a community of people who are our stakeholders. It's a community of descendants. And when we think about the narrative that a historic site tells, that means that the humanity and the community and the, the neighbors of Stagville, which I guess fits into the, the theme of this podcast, right, means that a place like Stagville has the possibility of accountability and change and growth and evolution in a way that something that is um, almost, um, you know, sort of designed to be disengaged with, um, something that is completely passive, um, like an object or a name, um, doesn't have that same capacity, right? And so we can think, and we should think, critically and challengingly and um, in our community about, for example, work that Stagville does, the work that any other historic site does, but we should see within that the possibility for um, those places to be completely reinvented if the need be, or um, to be pushed and challenged and changed, right? Um, and I really see that too as a core piece, a core piece of the work that we do is listening to our community members and listening to descendants and listening to visitors and um, building accountability and growth and new narratives through those responses from the public. Um, and it's sort of, it's a very different kind of public space um, than those sort of passive public places, um, some of which Jory just described. Um, and what I'm describing there is maybe an optimistic or best case scenario around how historic sites operate, right? There are many historic sites that might not make that commitment to accountability or might not act on those responses from the public, but um, the, the kernel is there, right? Um, and um, I also wanted to address similarly sort of the, um, I wanted to bring up sort of the, the, the core mission of historic interpretation, which we return to here time and time again. Um, but so often I think people outside of our field would be surprised to hear it because it does not come true so often in museums and historic sites. But when you are trained to, to be an interpreter, to interpret history, which is what we call our version, um, often the simplest version of interpretation, we call it meaning making, right? So it's basically is storytelling. It's translating an object or a piece of land or a piece of sort of supposedly factual history into meaning and connection for someone who comes to that place, right? And that's the essence of the work we do. Um, and if you are trained in that field, what you will eventually be told is that everything in the field boils down to one very simple maxim, which is that the purpose of interpretation is provocation. Um, so the purpose of the kind of learning or the kind of encounter that someone had at a historic site should not be that they walk away with a fact. It should be that something is provoked within them. 
And what that really means, what provocation really means is action, right? That's what we mean. We talk about provoking something within our visitors. And that could be the action that curiosity is provoked within them and that they go and they seek out new information or they seek out new narratives to encounter. It could be that they are provoked to change something about their lives or their actions or to take action within their community. Um, but all the theory, all the kind of training that people get within this field is that that is supposed to be the ultimate goal of our work, to have people encounter history in these places and be changed, right? Be transformed in some way by that experience. Now, we all recognize that someone who spends 60 minutes or 90 minutes or two hours at Historic Stagville, for example, of course, our expectation is not that that is going to, you know, instantly produce some radical change in that person's daily life, um, but that that is part of hopefully a series of encounters that they're going to have with this history, that that is going to be part of a series of provocations that they are going to encounter. Um, and um, I think many people would be surprised to hear the field described this way because I, can, I know from my own experience and from other people's experiences that very few people who go to museums and historic sites probably feel that that is the experience that they have, right? I think many people would leave a museum and historic site and feel that the takeaway was supposed to be that they know the year this building was built and who lived in it, for example, um, or some other sort of sterile fact about the place. Um, but if you really dive into the mission of this work, um, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And that's not what we're supposed to be accountable to. Um, and, um, and I also wanted to touch briefly and direct folks to a resource who are interested in sites of, memory um, that connect around themes of justice. Um, Stagville just um, this last month, um, we just um, were accepted and became a member of the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. Um, and so we are sort of entering um, as part of our growth, this new phase of identifying as a site of conscience. Um, and this is an international network of hundreds of sites all over the world. So anywhere that you travel, you can look for sites that do this work. Um, and I just like to read a little bit of their mission um, because I think it might be helpful for listeners in thinking about the possibility of these sites. Um, so what the International Coalition says is, the need to remember often competes with the equally strong pressure to forget even with the best of intentions, such as to promote reconciliation after deeply divided events by turning the page, erasing the past can prevent new generations from learning critical lessons and destroy opportunities to build a peaceful future. A site of conscience is a place of memory, such as a historic site, museum, or memorial that prevents this erasure from happening in order to ensure a more just and humane future. Not only do sites of conscience provide safe spaces to remember and preserve even the most traumatic memories, but they enable their visitors to make connections between this past and contemporary human rights issues. Um, and I think that sums up the work that we're trying to do. Um, and often the sites of conscience uh, members use this sort of shorthand where we say uh, memory to action is the shortest possible distillation of all of that, right? Um, so again, it's not just about creating an encounter with a traumatic or a violent or um, a, a narrative of past injustices and past dehumanization and past um, violations of human rights, 
but it's about enabling people who come to our site to forge connections between that and their own experience and their own communities and things that need to be protected or changed in the present day. Um, and um, so I encourage people um, who are traveling or visiting places to, to look at the sites of conscience if they're interested in visiting other sites like this. Um, but Stagville is now one of um, only three or four plantation sites in the United States that have made this commitment. Um, and I think that vision is a really helpful way for us to think about um, the possibilities of, of what historic sites could be um, with, with dialogue and with these connections um, and with this um, commitment to justice as a piece of, of their history work. Let me make sure I heard you right. You said of all the plantations in the United States, only three or four of them are sites of conscience? Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Not that, um, not that, and, and that's of, a relatively recently recent development, right? Wow. And there might um, be others like you two months ago were having conscience in your storytelling before you actually became a part of that. But that is a pretty stunning statistic. Like, absolutely. Um, and it's still um, very true that even at sites that maybe interpret the history of slavery or maybe acknowledge narrative of enslavement in a way they didn't before. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that narrative has become part of the core mission of the site, or maybe most significantly that interpreting that along with the legacies of slavery and the echoes of the history in the present day is part of that site's mission, right? So um, often um, historic sites are, are much more comfortable um, perhaps, or, or have a push from their audience to acknowledge the history of enslaved people or to tell some of those stories, but not necessarily, um, or they sometimes do that without um, connecting that narrative to their visitors' own experiences and, and lives and communities. Thank you so much for sharing, Vera. Um, you know, that that part of that you were sharing about provoking uh, a reaction, not just telling the story, if I if I heard you correctly, it just uh, solidified the journey that we take with the pilgrimage of pain and hope, because it is our hope that people are transformed by the journey and to know that we we're we have the the. Uh, blessing of starting it out at a place that also focuses on assuring that there is some sort, not just an encounter, you know, in the sense of I came here and checked that off the box, but uh, we, we are both striving to make sure that there's a transformative moment. So thank you for, for pulling that piece out. Uh, I may talk to you about it again. Uh, as we get back on the ground, <laughs> hopefully, um, and move forward with our pilgrimages. Absolutely. As we prepare to uh, round up our conversation, there is a question that we pose to uh, all of those who have uh, uh, given us their time and share their stories. And that question is, who is our neighbor right now? Uh, what does it look like in these times to 
love our neighbors as it relates to all that we've talked about today? What does that look like uh, to love your neighbor? What does it look like to uh, even love that person who went to Trayburn right down the street and, or persons and put KKK and sent uh, hate-filled messages about signs that have Black Lives Matter? What does that look like? Uh, if you and Jory would uh, share with us your thoughts on that last question. Yeah, um, I think that love, once again, I'm speaking from Jory's perspective. Um, love is not allowing someone to do something that's harmful to themselves. Um, and being willing to confront them on on that because you do do care. Um, I think oftentimes when the when we talk about like loving your neighbor, and I try to make it as quick as possible, um, there's also this there's this connotation. It's it's a presupposition that's brought into it. It's like you need to treat this person um, as favorable as possible to make them feel comfortable. Right. And oftentimes that is not actual love. Like if someone is doing something harmful to themselves, right, how is it loving to let them continue to, to, to do that? Um, so if I was speaking to someone who was being harmful to themselves in their community, I would say I would have to confront them on that action and say, like, no, that's like this is not how we actually show love to ourselves and to others. Um, now, obviously, that's you're not going to sacrifice yourself without a clear, conscious decision on that. Um, so I'm not. I don't think that we're saying like you got to go out here and be willing to let somebody harm you in order to love them. I think that's a cost that you you calculate um, depending upon where your conviction is. But I do think that. Oftentimes when we're asking people to, um, I, I hate to use the word in this way, but like we ask people to reconcile because um, I feel like that word has been tainted. Um, we're often asking people to ignore um, the trauma that they've experienced and the things that they've gone through in order to be in, in relationship with somebody and never actually confront the things that they experienced. And that in itself is anti-love to me. Um, that's that is not love at all. And I think that that's that's what that's how you love your neighbor. Um, yeah, I think that's 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 how we, we confrontation in many ways is is the most loving act we can do um, with someone. And you have to make sure that you actually are willing and invested in that person before you do that. And um, and that's not for everybody, you know, I would say that. Um, I think a couple of things that resonate with me from that are that, um, again, most folks probably would not expect it, but a shocking amount of theoretical writing about historic interpretation is about interpretation as an act of love and as a um, public uh, sort of profession of, uh, love and empathy and investment in the public and in each person that comes to a historic site um, because it's only through 
that kind of uh, deep empathy that we connect to people and that we move people um, and that someone who feels um, and, and, and it's only through that like deep empathy that we can bring someone into contact with a corrective narrative or into with a narrative that's new to them um, and have them have an experience of discomfort that is the experience of learning and growing towards hearing a new perspective um, that is not shaming or alienating or uh, doesn't cause them to reject the narrative or to disconnect from the learning experience. Um, there's a, a sort of a lot of nuanced thinking we have to do about how to do that and, and how to keep ourselves safe in that process. Because anytime someone who's educating at our site is doing that, they're also making themselves vulnerable to that person. Right. Um, and, and so a huge part of our responsibility is thinking about safety and, and well-being for interpreters here and, um, and, and sustainability for interpreters here within doing that work. But um, again, there is sort of that core underneath the idea of bringing people into an encounter with this history or into being a public place where people can um, ask questions and encounter these narratives um, that might be very uncomfortable or very upsetting uh, or uh, traumatic for some visitors. Um, and, oh gosh, there was something else I was going to say. Oh, I was also just going to I think connecting with what Jory was saying sort of about um, the connections between confrontation and love, uh, I think a lot about uh, in our work at Stagville and everyone on our staff and our volunteers here, we talk all the time about uh, sort of seeing accountability or confrontation um, as, as an act of love in some cases. And that when we think about uh, particularly when we think about the fact that historic sites um, and, and plantation sites specifically have created and propelled these mythologies about uh, that have glorified and romanticized white supremacy and enslavement and have sort of deliberately uh, obscured and suppressed the stories of uh, enslaved people and uh, black folks in general in these spaces and in these communities um, it feels like a profound act of love anytime one of our neighbors or a descendant or a visitor who comes on a program here uh, reaches out to us and tells us, you're not doing this well enough. You're not, I didn't hear this voice or uh, I didn't uh, encounter this history or why was this said in this way? I felt that that hurt me or hurt someone I loved or pushed us out from being able to connect with the history of your site, um, especially. Um, and so um, every time someone reaches out to us and kind of calls us into how we can do this work better or how we can grow uh, the narratives that we teach or the, the way we structure our programs, um, that really feels like, like a neighborly act and, and like an act that is grounded in love because we know that it takes... Um, it's an act of trust for that person to even spend the energy to connect with someone on our staff or to um, spend the time and energy to even document their experience and share it with us. It means that on some level, you know, no matter um, 
how upset or how hurt they were by that experience, they're taking the time and energy to expect us to listen to that and to change in response. Um, and so um, I think I experience a lot of that um, neighborly connection or sort of community bond um, through through uh, accountability. And I think that connects pretty deeply to what Jory just said in terms of um, those experiences of love or neighborliness are not always comfortable and are not always something that you might describe as, as fun or enjoyable or joyful. Um, but that, that discomfort is part of the definition of that work. Um, I think that's all I have on that. I, um, I guess this brings us to the, the challenge of, of closing this conversation uh, for this particular episode, but I want to thank you all again for your thoughtfulness and for, um, you know, being provoking uh, ourselves and our, and our listeners around these uh, very important realities um, and uh, the challenge of the work that you're doing. So we want to salute and bless you as um, you are continued to commission to to, care, to fulfill your calling and in our community and this city that we love uh, so much and are trying to find ways to continue to persist in love even while we see many hate symbols. So, um, you know, rising up almost equally as, as fast as we're, we're trying to um, encourage uh, the motivation and inspire us to love and in spite of hate. Um, so, uh, I'm reminded of a poem and I was trying to find it uh, while you all were speaking of a, a colleague of mine who it's the title is Brave Space and in, essentially uh, part of I see you shaking your head a bit there Vera I'm not sure if you're familiar with this poem but uh, it one of the things that struck me about the poem is it said that there are no more safe spaces uh, and that presents a challenge to us because in the biblical narrative of the Samaritan, which is again, a motivate and inspiring part of the Durham cares, um, the birthing of Durham cares is, is dealing with the fact that, that someone has done harm. Um, and in, 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 in the case of the story, a very violent harm uh, to a particular member of the community and to be able to, um, a, you know, come to terms with the violence of how how space is constructed, how it is uh, still organized in a way to oppress. Um, again, our hearts our hearts are heavy, while also trying to persist in this aspirational narrative that we can do good in our community um, in spite of the violence that's all around us. Um, so. No, with that, with that, again, thank you for, for blessing us with your time and your honest, frank, and thoughtful uh, responses to our questions. The Who Is My Neighbor podcast is a production of Durham Cares, a nonprofit that mobilizes Durham residents to love their neighbors. 
Learn more at www.dermcares.org. Be blessed.